0: So Acts 15, 1-4, for a sermon I've entitled Contending for the Faith. I should follow along as I read. Here's what it says. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had a great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. To live above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with saints we know, well, that's a different story. Now, that humorous rhyme reveals a sad but important reality. Despite the fact that the church has one Lord, one faith, and one baptism, it often has divisions and disputes, including over what it means to have Jesus as Lord, what the content of our faith is, and even the mode of baptism. Now, sometimes, though, the issues that churches divide over are trivial and silly. Tom Rainer, in an article that he wrote about church fights, um, gives a list of incidents that he knew about where a church is divided. Let me give you some that he mentioned. Arguments over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. Fight over whether or not to build a children's playground or to use the land for a cemetery. A 45-minute heated argument over what type of filing cabinet to buy. A brown one, a black one, one with two drawers, three Or four. A petition that's circled in a church to have all church staff members clean-shaven. I think that included the piano player lady, too, everyone. How about this one? A big church uh, argument over the discovery that the budget was off by 10 cents. Ours was not off at all this year, was it? Good. (laughs) How about this one? A dispute in the church because the Lord's Supper had, someone had used cranberry juice instead of grape juice. Or this one. Arguments over what type of green beans should be served at the church potluck. Or this one, two different churches reported having fights over the type of coffee that was being served. In one church, they moved from Folgers to Starbucks brand. In the other church, they simply moved to a stronger blend, and people left the church as a result of it. Perhaps they started a new church called the Right Blend Fellowship or something like that. How about this one? An argument over whether the church should be allowed to serve deviled eggs at its potlucks. Deviled eggs? Somebody suggested that they should only do that if they balanced it off with angel food cake. Well, someone told me of a church that they were in where they had a big argument in the church over whether to have powdered sugar donuts or crystal sugar donuts. And it was a, quite a fiasco. Now, other times though, the issues in the church are not trivial. In the early centuries, there were knockdown, drag-out fights and theological battles over the person of Christ. I mean, what does it mean to call Jesus the Son of God? Is he equal with the Father? Did he have both a human and a divine nature? If so, how do these natures relate to each other? These are weighty matters, and most Christians at the time understood that what was at stake was heaven and hell. I mean, we're saved by faith in Christ, but what Christ? Is he the Jesus that Arius proclaimed? a created being, not eternal, who had a similar nature to the Father, but not the same nature of the Father, so therefore he was inferior to him. For Arius, God the Father was God with a big G, but Jesus was God with a small G. He was a God, but he was not the God. Now, Athanasius, on the other hand, proclaimed that Jesus was the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, equal in power and glory and honor with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. Jolly old Saint Nicholas Did you know he was a real person? No, he wasn't a man in a red suit at the North Pole. Instead, he was a bishop from the city of Myra at the Council of Nicaea, where the church dealt with the issue of the nature of Christ. He got into a great argument with uh, Arius, the heretic, and as a result of it, he ended up punching him in the face. Years ago, Territon Cigarettes had an ad where they would picture someone with a black eye, a man or a woman, And smoking and it said this. It said, you know, I'd rather fight than switch. Well, evidently, for Nicholas, he was willing to fight over the issue of Christ's nature because he knew that the stakes were that high. Now, earlier in the book of Acts, as we've been going through it, we saw that there was a dispute in the church, a division over a practical matter, how the widows of the church were being cared for. But here in Acts 15, we have another division, this one, a theological one, one that's infinitely more important because the issue at stake is how is a person saved? Now, this became such a heated debate when they were in Antioch that the church there decided to send Paul and Barnabas and a few others to Jerusalem to have the apostles deal with this and settle this issue. We don't have time to go through the whole of the chapter today, so I want to just start with the first four verses to set up the issue, see the background and the dispute that was going on so that we can come back next week and see how the first council uh, at Jerusalem dealt with this theological issue. So why don't we pray then and get into the text. Father, I do pray for grace and mercy. Help us to see this. We live in an age when people say, ah, you know, it doesn't make much difference what you believe, but oh, it makes all the difference what we believe. Heaven and hell, it really is at stake. So we pray that you'd open up our eyes to what the scripture says and understand the importance and the significance of this. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you keep uh, an outline of, your, of the sermon, um, I think we can write down three phrases that will cover it. The first one you can write down is just the issue at stake. That's verse one, the issue at stake. Secondly, you can write down the phrase distension and debate. That's verse two. And then finally, up to Jerusalem. And that's three before. Now remember where we are in the story before we took a break for Christmas. Paul and Barnabas had been sent out by the church in Antioch on their first missionary journey. And these two men covered a a distance of 1,500 miles over a period of 18 months. And it was during that time that they were going from city to city planting new churches among the Gentiles. And of course, they faced hardships and difficulties and persecution. He gave blood, sweat, and tears with the hope that both Jews and Gentiles would come to salvation through faith in Christ. But was it by faith alone? Or was there something else that was necessary if people wanted to be saved? And that brings us to our first point, the issue at stake. Now go back in your Bible, look back to chapter 14, starting in verse 21, where we read this. After they meaning Paul and Barnabas, had preached the gospel to that city and had made made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to uh, Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them in the faith, saying through many um, tribulations, to continue in the faith, saying through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, when Paul and Barnabas were encouraging them to continue the faith, it means to continue believing those truths that they had taught them when they established the churches. The truth about Jesus, who he was, his death and resurrection, and how faith in that is what reconciles us to God. Through whatever tribulations they were going to go through, they had to hold on to those beliefs. I have to say, holding on to and proclaiming the truth, especially the truth of the gospel, is the main task of the church. I mean, the devil hates the truth, so he seeks to distort it deny it, oppose it, and subvert it. And he does that both working outside the church, pressuring it from the outside, but also subverting it from the inside. Speaking of the prophets of the Old Testament who brought the word of God to Israel, Peter goes on to say this in a warning. He says, but false prophets were also, also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, Bring swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow after their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be maligned, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment is from long ago and not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. In other words, their judgment's coming at the end. That's 2 Peter 2, 1 to 3. Jude addressed the same problem when he wrote this. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you concerning our common salvation. I felt it necessary to write to you appealing to you to contend earnestly for the faith once delivered over to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, those who were long before marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now all Christians have a responsibility to contend for the faith, that is to know it and defend it. But this is particularly the responsibility of pastors and elders. That's why we read in verse 23 of Acts 14, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Paul told Titus that an overseer or a pastor was one who had to hold fast the faithful word in accordance with the teaching so that he's able to both exhort in sound doctrine and also refute those who contradict. You see, it's not just enough for a pastor to proclaim the truth. He also has to point out error and show why these false teachings don't line up with what the scripture actually teaches. The Apostle John, in his second letter, wrote this. He said, anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who has, abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not even receive him into your house. And do not give them a greeting, for the one who gives them a greeting participates in his evil deeds. 1 John 1, 9-11. Now listen, Christians can degree, uh, disagree on many issues and still be Christians. You know, the mode of baptism, end times events, our understanding of election and the sovereignty of God. I mean, these are important issues, but if you get them wrong, that doesn't necessarily disqualify you from being a Christian. But there are bedrock beliefs that you must hold in order to be considered a believer. There's some issues where no compromise can be made and no wiggle room given. And one of those issues is this. How is a person saved? That is, on what basis does God declare a person righteous and therefore acceptable in his sight? Well, the issue at stake here was made clear in verse 1. Look what it says again. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, meaning the Christians, unless you're circumcised, According to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, here's a question. Where did they get that idea from? Well, from the Old Testament. You remember when God met with Abraham, as recorded in Genesis chapter 17? We're just doing this in our confirmation class last time. He said this. God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants, after you, throughout their generations. And this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and their descendants after you. Every male from among you shall be circumcised and you shall be be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin and it shall be a sign of the covenant between you and me. And every male among you who's eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations, a servant who's born in your house or one who's bought for, with money from a foreigner who's not of your descendants, a servant who's born in your house or he who's bought with money shall surely be circumcised. Thus, my covenant will be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But as for the uncircumcised male who's uncircumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people because they have broken the covenant. Genesis 17. Genesis 17. 9 to 14. Look, that passage makes clear that all of Abraham's descendants and all who were in his family who were considered part of the covenant people, had to, the men had to be circumcised. Well, what about this? I mean, if you refuse that right, it says they were cut off. Now, I'm sure there were verses like these that the Judaizers were using them when they were arguing against Paul. Now, they were right to say that in the Old Testament, people had to be circumcised. But they were wrong to say that people now had to be circumcised because since Jesus had died and been resurrected and inaugurated a new covenant, they were no longer bound by the old covenant. Jen Ellis, she was a uh, lawyer for President Trump. She also was a Christian. I heard her interviewed a number of years ago on David Freehart's program. He's a YouTuber, a Jewish guy from Canada. And uh, during the part of the discussion, it was mainly about President Trump and her job and whatnot, but she mentioned she was a Christian. She said, I have a question for you, just as a Jew, I want to know something. So what's that? said, you're a Christian, you take the Bible seriously, well then why don't you keep the dietary laws that are found in the scripture? And I thought she did a great job explaining to her. She pointed out that when he was living in Montreal as a Canadian citizen, he was bound by Canadian law and under the Charter of Rights, which is the equivalent of the Constitution for the Canadians. But having moved to the United States and now applying for U.S. citizenship, she said that as soon as you get that U.S. citizenship, you're no longer bound by Canadian law. She said it's the same way for Christians. Before Jesus came, the Jewish people were under the old covenant, that was their constitution. But once Jesus came and inaugurated a new covenant, the old one becomes obsolete. We're not bound to it in any way. Now, he said, Well, I guess that kind of makes sense. Now, he didn't convert but it at least made sense to him. But I don't think that would have made sense to these people who are arguing with Paul, these Judaizers. That brings us to our second point, though, the dissension and the debate. By the way, in your family growing up, uh, who liked to argue a lot? Was there any of you? Were you the arguer, always getting at it at the table? I mean, if you were from an Italian family, you know that what you did is you just yell at each other all the time. <laughs> or if you're from an Irish family, what did you do? You punched each other. Patrick punched Sean. Sean punched Mary. Mary punches Maggie. In Sweden, they have a saying that goes like this. It says, let your food silence your mouth. They generally don't talk at the table when they're eating. I guess that'll keep you from arguing. Well, the word argue for us tends to have a um, negative connotation. But I mean, doesn't a uh, lawyer present arguments for his client? One Jewish woman I listened to who gave her testimony about how she got saved said, growing up, she said, in our family, we argue about everything all the time, said three of the four of the kids grew up to be lawyers. Well, as Christians, we're told to sanctify Christ as Lord in our heart, always ready to make a defense, or we could say an argument, to everyone who asks us to give an account for the hope that we have in us, yet with gentleness and reverence. Paul was not opposed to arguing. Indeed, he knew that if we were going to contend earnestly for the faith once delivered, we'd have to do that. And that's why we find him doing that here. It says in verse 2, Paul and Barnabas had a great dissension and debate with them. Now, some people like conflicts and debates. Uh, they like to stir up the pot and get the cauldron boiling. There are a few people like that, but I think most people would rather just smooth things over and not ruffle feathers. Instead, take a live and let live attitude. Now, I think that's particularly true for women. A number of years ago when I was working at the cheese factory, I was sitting in the break room and I got into a discussion with someone there about the topic of women as pastors. And I pointed out what the Bible says in First Timothy chapter two, where Paul said this, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Um, Paul, was, and I, Paul was talking about within the church. Well, the coworker I was talking to knew the Bible, and so he accepted that. Uh, but when I got back to work, I noticed that one of my coworkers, a lady named Linda, was, seemed to be mad at me. And I didn't know why I hadn't gone late on my break and we didn't have any kind of words before that. Well, what happened? was somebody else was sitting in the break room who overheard the conversation and somehow related it back to her. And she was offended by my comments. Now, Linda was a strong, independent woman who had been married and divorced a couple times. And I got along with her really well. So I knew there was no personal issue here. It was a theological one. Which is interesting because she didn't even attend church. But she confronted me over what I said. And so I had a great teaching moment here. And so I said this. I said, you know, every week I get up and explain... Uh, the Bible and what it says to people. Now, suppose you had that task, Lisa, uh, Linda. I said, uh, and if you got up on a Sunday morning and you knew that the message that you were gonna give that morning was gonna cost you a friendship with your greatest, dearest, closest, and longest friend, would you still get up and give that message? And she said, no. I said, well, that's why women can't be pastors. I said, they're not wired that way. Women are wired to maintain relationships, to put that above just about anything. You want proof of that? Go watch a YouTube thing when they go in and interview women on anything just on the street. And they'll say, well, what do you think about this? There'll be three women there, they're all laughing and whatnot, but before one ventures, she'll turn to the others to see whether she's gonna give an answer that will be acceptable to them so they can maintain the friendship. By the way, that works really well if you're dealing with relationships and keeping them going. It doesn't do very well if you have the responsibility of standing for the truth no matter what the cost. Now I have to say, it's not just women who are like this. A lot of guys are like this, and sadly, even pastors. They're pastors who are, don't have the courage to risk their job, their reputation, or their retirement, or their friendships and connections enough to stand for the gospel and stand against the pressure that's put against them in our culture. I mean, think about how many pastors dutifully complied with the government's demand to close down their churches during COVID. Some of them did it for two and three years. How many Christian leaders have bowed to the pressure of the LGBTQ activists? The leaders of Exodus International, which was a Christian organization that was started to help people get out of a homosexual lifestyle, closed up shop back in 2015. They issued an apology to the gay community for ever trying to help people get out of that lifestyle. Max Lucado is a well known and popular Christian pastor and author. Back in 2021, he issued a public apology to the gay community for preaching a sermon 17 years earlier where he called homosexuality a sin. According to the Christian Post article I read on this, Lucado wrote that faithful people may disagree about what the Bible says about homosexuality, but we're all agreed that God's holy word must never be used as a weapon to wound others. He went on to say this, quote, Over the centuries, the church has harmed LGBTQ people and their families, just as the church has harmed people on the issues of race and gender and divorce and addiction and so many other things. We must do better to serve one another. In other words, he caved. Other Christian leaders have embraced critical race theory. Some have marched with Black Lives Matter, which is a Marxist organization, who stayed on their own website that they're task, one of them is to abolish the nuclear family. Now, these issues are all important, but none of them is nearly as important as getting the gospel right. See, that's a do-or-die issue for the Apostle Paul. Indeed, he ended up in a public confrontation with Peter, the Apostle Peter, over the idea that you have to keep the Mosaic law and dietary laws in order to be justified. Listen to the Paul uh, recounts this incident from Galatians two eleven 11 to 16. He says this, But when Cephas, meaning Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when he, they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. So get what's going on. Peter's eating ham sandwiches. He's, he's hanging around with Gentiles. Everything's great because he knows it's all faith. And then some people come supposedly from James, and they're like, oh, I don't know about that, Peter. That, that doesn't look right. I mean, we're Jews. You know? and, and so he's like, uh, and like, Peter, come sit at our table. No, I, I think I might have to sit over here. Now, probably a lot of people, oh, that's, that's odd. But Paul saw what was at stake. And so he says this, the rest of the Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, which resulted in even Barnabas being carried away by this hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel, that's what's at stake, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how do you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, if you're eating a ham sandwich, why are you turning around saying they can't eat a ham sandwich? He says this, we are Jews by nature. In other words, that's our birth, that's our heritage. Not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Now you have to understand, The Judaizers were Jewish people who accepted Jesus as the Messiah. They believed you had to have faith in the Messiah. They just thought you needed to add something to that, the keeping of the Mosaic Law. So it's what Jesus does, plus what you do. In effect, you had to become a Jew to become a Christian. But Paul had just finished an 18-month tour of duty where he told the Gentiles all they had to do was trust in Christ to be saved. You can't earn your salvation by works. You have to receive it as a gift. And if you try to add to Christ's work, you actually destroy it and then reject it as a gift. Now, the way I was illustrate it is this. Imagine that your great-great-great-grandfather, for some of you, and for some of you just maybe your grandfather, <laughs> was at a New York Yankees game back in 1927 when they were playing in the World Series. And uh, your uncle or your great-great-grandfather was sitting out in the, and... and Babe Ruth gets up to bat, and he hits one. Home run, grand slam, and your uncle catches the ball. And afterwards, he goes and has the great Bambino sign it for him. Well, that ball was passed from your great-great-grandfather down to your great-grandfather down to your father, and now you have it. And the antique roadshow is coming. And so you think, I'm going to bring this in and see what It's worth. You bring it in and you show it to them and oh, they're looking at it and looking all over and they said, well, we have authenticated that this is indeed the ball from that World Series. And we've checked out the the signature on it and that is Babe Ruth's signature. But we noticed something here. You seem to have taken a marker and traced over the signature to dark. Oh yeah, I did that so people could see it better. Okay, well, in the original condition, before it was traced over, it would have been worth about $800,000. But now because you did it, probably 250 bucks. Why? That's the same ball. What did he do? I mean, he was just trying to fix it, trying to add to it, trying to make it a little better. But by trying to make it better, he destroyed the value of it. If you try to add something like circumcision and the keeping of the Mosaic Law and dietary rules to the work of Christ, you destroy it. You can't improve it because Christ has done all that's necessary. And so... That's what Paul was doing here, you know? He was, he was arguing for this. And, and when he first found out that this was happening, he wrote a blistering letter to the churches in Galatia because he heard that the Judaizers had brought in this message and the people he had preached to had believed the gospel were starting to think, well, now we've got to be circumcised. We've got to keep Mosaic law in order to do this. Well, they were wrong. And so Paul wrote this, starting in Galatians 1, 6 to 9. He says this, I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by his grace, the grace of Christ, for a different gospel. Which is really not another. But there's some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preached to you, he's to be accursed. That means damned and go to hell. As we said before, we say it again, if anyone's preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received from us, let him be accursed. Later in that same letter, Paul wrote this. Behold, I, Paul say to you, if anyone receives circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that you're under obligation to keep the whole law. You've been severed from Christ. You are seeking to be justified by the law. You've fallen from grace. Paul knew that if the Galatians started trusting in Christ and Christ plus something, plus circumcision, plus keeping the dietary laws, they'd perish. And I want you to get this in your mind. If you think today that you can be saved by trusting in Christ plus your baptism, or Christ plus your confirmation, or Christ plus the fact that you're a church member, or Christ plus the fact that you just raised your hand somewhere along the line, or Christ plus the fact that you're a good, upstanding moral person, you're gonna perish. There's a reason we sing songs that say, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. You know, Supreme Court is gonna decide, coming up very shortly, on the ballot issue with Donald Trump. They have to. They have to settle this debate because there's a lot at stake on whether he can be voted in or not voted in. Well, people here knew that they needed to settle this issue. And so the next thing we see is that they were sent up to Jerusalem. Up to Jerusalem. That's verses three to four. Here's what it says. The brethren, meaning the Christians, determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders concerning this issue. Now it's interesting that they say that they would go up to Jerusalem. From where we are here in Wisconsin, when we talk about going up, we'd say going up to Winnipeg, Canada, or down to Mexico, or across to Europe, or down under to Australia. But you know, it's interesting because... Antioch's actually north of Jerusalem. Well, in what sense are you going up? Well, in the same way that if you were in India or Nepal or Tibet and you were going to Mount Everest, you'd be going up no matter where you're going. Well, Jerusalem was on an elevated area. And so in the mind of the Jews, anytime you went to Jerusalem, you were going up. Now, what mattered here was not the direction they were going, but why they were going there. Because they wanted this issue settled once and for all. Here's what I read in verse 3. Therefore, being sent on their way, um, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they were bringing great joy to all the brethren. So not wanting to waste any time and ministry opportunities, as they're going back, they were stopping at all the churches, and they were telling them what God was doing and how many Gentiles were coming to understand and to know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through his son, Jesus Christ. And it says in verse four, when they arrived at Jerusalem... They were received by the church and the apostles and the elders and they reported all that God had done with them. So Paul had already confronted Peter when he waffled on this issue. He had stood up and refuted the Judaizers in Antioch. He knew what was at stake, men's souls. And when the church meets in Jerusalem a few days after this, we're going to find Paul and Barnabas again contending for the faith and the truth of the gospel, the only gospel that will save men and women, boys and girls. Let me ask this as we come to close here. Have you understood the gospel? Have you understood the good news that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, who is God who became man, to earth to live a perfectly righteous life of obedience to God and then to offer up that life as a sacrifice for sins so that on the cross, for those who trust in Jesus, their sin is punished on him. And when a person believes, his righteousness is credited to them. So there's a double imputation. That's the gospel. That's the gospel that Paul proclaimed. That's the gospel that we proclaim. But is that the gospel that you've believed, received, and trusted in? Now, if you have, then what you need to do is bring this gospel message to others, to your family members and friends to people who are raised in churches where they don't get a clear gospel message, to co-workers, to neighbors, because we're the ones who have the truth. But if you haven't received that, if you haven't understood that, what you need to do is believe it. You need to ask God to open your heart to respond to the gospel message, and when you do, he will grant you eternal life. Not because you earned it, not because you're religious, but because he's good and merciful and offers grace to sinners who desperately need it. What are you doing with Jesus? That's what matters. Let's pray. Our Father and God, is there anything new here? No. We sing songs that say, tell me the old, old story. And it is an old, old story, but this is the only message that has the power to transform lives and to change eternal destinies. So Father, I pray for everyone here. Uh, There's a few people here who haven't understood this, but there's people even here today, Lord, who have not embraced it. They've not trusted in it. And so I pray that this would happen for them, even this day, that they would turn from their sins and trust in Jesus and find eternal life. And for those of us who have believed it, Lord, help us this year to be more zealous in getting the gospel out because we've known people who've died in the last year, Lord, who didn't die trusting you and were lost. We want to be a witness to all the people around us. So bless us to that end. We're asking Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're gonna stand and sing hymn 406. 406.